welcome to the Pathways to Power podcast series. I'm Terry Gibson and I've been linking up with people in twos and threes, on Skype and in phone calls. The conversations have spanned continents, linking people working at the front line of development and humanitarian response with others who draw alongside them. A common thread of these conversations is the recognition that, despite its stated goals, the aid industry often fails in practice to focus on local needs and priorities. Why is this? And what changes are needed? The first podcast in the series looks at the widely used term, localisation. What is it? Are people even agreed on its meaning? It's become a buzzword, for example at the UN's World Humanitarian Summit, where demands for localisation led to establishment of a grand bargain for wholesale change in the way organisations in the aid industry, large and small, do business. But what does it mean? Does everyone share the same understanding of what it means and of what needs to be done to achieve it? other conversation though Terry that I'm fascinated by is that yes in principle they agree I, I I think they say they agree with it I say they meaning the larger INGOs but the way in which they're interpreting this localization is um it's fascinating right Sam works at American Jewish World Service an organization which works very closely with small and unregistered organizations they they then are identifying at least my my I have seen this on the ground, and this is from very specific context, so I'm not saying across the board, where an INGO came and funded an organization and then told them how and how they wanted them to, to implement the project. A to Z, giving very, very, very little control or voice or agency to the local implementer. It really was, here's all our money, and now we're going to run your organization to do it the way that we've seen it done in 50 other countries, and we have a proven model that works, which is, which is even more harmful than just leaving them alone and not giving them the money altogether. Moyo and his colleague Stuart have experienced this in their work with the Community Foundation in rural Zimbabwe. He refers to this as the old order of development. Uh, how then do how do communities uh, have self belief and challenge the old order of development? You know, this old order of development that is a top down approach, whereby the, the, the donors will sort of like prescribe to say, this is what we want you to do. You know, they'll be talking of statistics, the number of people that we have reached out, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the indicators of, of change, such kind of things that they sort of like pres- prescribe all the time. So we are saying, um, you know, the donors themselves, I mean, in order for you to really respond to the community's issues, you need to understand how the people live, the people themselves, you know, starting from how do they live? Liz Harrison, working on accelerating localization at Christian Aid, also sees the old order in action. So on a global level, I think a lot of the signatories on the grand bargain are um, trying to work out ways to meet those commitments without really following the spirit of those commitments. Um, and I'll give an example of that. For example, we know the, the key target is 25% of aid funds are transferred to local and national actors. Um, A lot of donors and UN agencies actually are doing good work here, but some are 
are using that 25% by 2020 and saying, well, that can be on a global aggregate for us, global average. So if we transfer 50% in one country, we don't have to transfer any, you know, 0% in another country. So let, let's get to 25% on a global level, which which I think misses misses the point, of course. Sudanshu became so frustrated with the lack of progress in the international system that he left Geneva, moved back to India and started a locally based NGO. So, uh, so here uh, in India, uh, not only in India, but uh, at a global level, I'm trying based on my experience, my understanding to post localization agenda. It's very frustrating and challenging, but we cannot give up because so many global processes start and they die down without reaching their intended results, no? uh, particularly all the humanitarian reform processes and grand bargain, not much has been achieved in last three years' time. Um, so, so, so we cannot just leave it only on big agencies, we have to assert as smaller organizations. When disaster strikes, as in the 2015 Gorka earthquake in Nepal, the need for understanding localization is particularly acute. Sumira, who works with a network of organisations in Nepal, explains that the many agencies and government offices find it hard to understand what's happening locally and should be putting local organisations first. A barrier that we have um, in terms of understanding the localisation different, from different uh, actors, uh, from government, uh, from UN agencies, uh, from, uh, from partners, from INGOs, and also how we, uh, national level NGOs, we understand uh, the uh, localization. So these are few, um, the, the clarity on the localization has been one of the prominent issues, and that's what we are very working um, in regards to make it uh, understandable in terms of uh, creating accountable system and also a system which is uh, very, uh, very uh, promotes uh, the local level actors in decision making and also uh, putting putting the, putting uh, local actors at the center of uh, the humanitarian response. When you look at the architecture of the humanitarian response system and even when you look at the cluster system in the meetings, how unfriendly they are to a local group. Like and, and I think that's that's one piece of it. Like the architecture is just not set up for 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 ethical and efficient localization, if that's what we're gonna call it. That was Sam, whose work brings her close to local organisations facing humanitarian challenges. Monica works with Safer World, who focus on conflict situations. She too sees the challenges of getting the international system to properly understand local challenges. Increasingly technical elements sort of mean that there's been more and more of a, um, a justification of the permanence of some international functions. And I think there is a case for that, you know, when you're talking about engineering and um, capacity for when you know there's a huge movement of people and you need to respond with sanitation and everything else of course you need quickly deployable people who can build that but then equally you need to be able to connect them up to um, local engineers who can make sure that what's being proposed actually is relevant and going to work for those communities um, so yeah I think um, I think there's a lot running against the genuine implementation of a more um, interconnected system, uh, one that breaks down the sectors and silos and actually just responds to people's needs. Kailash, based in Nepal, certainly wishes the system was more responsive. Yes, thank you, Terry. Uh, this is Kailash Rizal. In fact, I have been working in one of the national NGO uh, in, in, in Nepal named Development Project Service Centre, Deprox Nepal, we call it. 
the whole process of localization what we see is uh, still uh, still the the local organizations or the indigenous mechanism of response mechanism is not uh, not that really reached to the donor level i mean there is a, a number of intermediary sort of number of organization in between where the distortion of communication distortion of knowledge distortion of all those things takes place and that is how again the frustration creates in the Meredith works with community partners international in Bangladesh and she works very closely with local organizations from that perspective she thinks a real change of mindset is needed among international organizations to work effectively together with them there is a, a quite quite a difference uh, in this setting in the Bangladesh setting where um, there is a, a large development sector that is well established uh, in Bangladesh and that is that is the sector that's the lens through which the the local actors, the civil society from Bangladesh, um, the national NGOs, the local NGOs from Cox's Bazaar, they're all coming to this humanitarian response with 20, 30, 40 years of experience working in the, the, the task for IEO for the UN is really to sort of um, help them get to the point to understand that the humanitarian contact to try to bring, to bring that perspective and to try to shift that paradigm from the local perspective where this is where we've always done things in our country. Um, this is what our government wants us to do. So um, shifting shifting that mindset has been a, a, a big challenge in, in this setting. Away from the pressures of humanitarian crises, longer term development work faces similar challenges. Ben and Oscar work in Jos, Nigeria. They've had to break down the suspicion among local people of projects which are often imposed by outside donors with limited relevance to their local needs. I think the most of the donor agencies uh, are driven by set structure in terms of project-based rather than people-based. Now, so you have project-centered development with clear timelines. They want to see results, output, objectives met at particular times. Uh, they've had projects, similar projects of this nature that comes uh, with an external objective, not really an objective to uplift the community. So they were a bit suspicious of the project thinking it's one of those projects that will just come and, you know, uh, people will just take pictures, uh, funding comes, and then they see nothing. It seems sad that the top-down, project-driven approach of international organisations results in suspicion and apathy rather than engagement and involvement at local level. Melvin works in Kenya with KCDF, an organisation that gathers funds for local community organisations, and he too thinks that the whole system has to shift its mindset. So until they put in enough effort for them to sort of identify the unique selling points that these organisations have and, 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 and have a sit down and have sessions with these organisations on just what is what is it that they are trying to do, as opposed to them being so used to having a finished product that to them it's basically buying buying projects for, for communities. So it's tough, and, and most donors will always go back to default mode because it, it's tedious. It's tedious work dealing with grassroots organizations. I like Melvin's point that it's tedious dealing with grassroots organizations. 
I'm sure he's being tongue-in-cheek. In my experience, it's never tedious dealing with them. But maybe he's got the fundamental point. It seems from our conversations that localisation can mean very different things depending on whether you're a UN agency, a government, an INGO, a local organisation or a local community. But tedious or not, until these organisations draw closer to the grassroots, localisation will remain a buzzword rather than a reality. Other podcasts in this series will look at why localisation matters, how it can be supported and what the barriers to it are. You'll find the other episodes and much more information, including details on all the contributors, by googling Global Fund for Community Foundations Pathways to Power, where you're also very welcome to contribute your own comments and join in the conversations. And finally, my thanks to Sam, Moyo, Stuart, Liz, Sudanchu, Sumira, Monica, Kailash, Meredith, Ben, Oscar and Melvin who contributed to this episode.